belief in individual liberty is one of the defining features of our times. We are fiercely committed to the notion of the autonomous self. We believe that we must have the freedom to think, to gather, to speak, and to act freely. Voices of the past, such as that of the political and moral philosopher Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century, who emphasized personal responsibility and obligation more than rights and freedoms. Voices like these ring hollow in a freedom-loving society as ours. And yet our present intoxication with freedom, liberty, give me liberty or give me death, our intoxication with this notion of liberty should not lead us to neglect our primary task in life as human beings. We should never neglect our sacred obligation. An obligation that Jesus explicates for us here in the passage that was read in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. The defining obligation of all men, our Lord Jesus says, that we are to love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. That is the obligation that has been placed upon us as human beings, simply put, love for God. And that love for God leads to a corresponding love for our neighbor. The entire New Testament ethics regarding how we are to relate to one another in community of a church or to relate to others in society is driven by love. Love to God, love to man. My task is merely to develop the first aspect of our obligation, which is love to God. Because without it, there can be no true love to man. This call to love God occurs in Mark chapter 12 in a context of Jesus' strife with the intelligentsia in Israel, the leading lights, the leading theologians, and biblical scholars. We saw something of this in chapter 11 of Mark. A group, a series of men, leaders, took turns approaching Jesus with questions. And we see in chapter 11, towards the end of chapter 11 of Mark, that a group of elders and chief priests and scribes, those who made up the Sanhedrin, the body of 70 religious leaders that ruled over Israel, a group of these leaders came to Jesus and they, they essentially asked him, tell me by what authority, tell us by what authority are you doing the things you're doing? They want to question Jesus' authority for healing, for teaching. And our Lord dexterously turns the table on them. He says, before I answer the question, you tell me about the baptism of John. Where did John get his authority for his baptism and the works that he did? 
And you see, they were caught on the horns of a dilemma. Because if they said that John did not get his authority from God, the people held John to be a prophet, and they were afraid that they would be stoned. If they, however, said that John got his authority from God, then Jesus would say to them, then why didn't you receive John? Why didn't you obey him? And so they responded to Jesus, well, we do not know where John got his authority from. We don't know about his baptism, where he got it from. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you where I have gotten my authority. In other words, if you cannot detect that John has received authority from God, you will never detect that I have gotten my authority from God the Father because we have gotten our authority, John and I, from the same source. You can't understand where John got his. You certainly won't know where I got mine. In chapter 12, that group of leaders are still bent on questioning Christ. Their objective is to reveal Christ as a charlatan, as a fraud, as no true rabbi and teacher. And so we notice after the parable of the vineyard in chapter 12, 1 to 11, a second group now comes to question Jesus. They want to demolish him in the public square, send him back to the backwaters of Nazareth from where he came. These are the brilliant lights, the, the true intellectuals in Israel. And so a second group comes to the Lord. These are the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were those who believed that they were to live holy lives and live as though they were priests, keeping all the commandments of God. The Herodians were a political group. They, 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 among them were the truly rich. These were those who somehow had consorted with Rome, accepted Roman rule, and they were rich. And this group came to Christ and they asked a question. They began with a flowery introduction, which Christ understood as hypocrisy. But they eventually got around to the question. And the question that they posed to Christ was simply this. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They wanted to know if taxes should be paid to Caesar. Yes or no? Just give us a simple answer. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? But the question itself is politically explosive. Because if Jesus says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then he'll be guilty of inciting sedition and rebellion, and the Roman rulers would charge him with fomenting rebellion. If he says, go ahead and pay taxes, the people would think that he has sold out to Rome. So Jesus brilliantly calls for Daenerys, and he says, whose inscription and whose image is on this Daenerys? It was a, a coin, the, the, the lowest of coins. And they said, it's Caesar's inscription, and it is his image who's on the coin. And Jesus responds, give unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and give to God the things that belong to God. One writer says, Jesus blew them out of the water. You would think that after demolishing two groups, people would be rather hesitant to go and ask him further questions. But a third group, perhaps thinking, these guys don't know what they're doing. We're going to nail Jesus. We're going to get him. These are the Sadducees. These are the ones who believed that there is no resurrection. And so they come to Jesus with a question, a hypothetical situation. 
very difficult. And the question goes something like this. this man, there is a man who got married. There are seven brothers. One of them got married. He's actually talking about liberate marriage. The notion in Israel is that if you, if you were married to somebody, you didn't, you, you didn't have children, and you died without leaving an heir, your brother would marry your wife who's left alive and raise up an heir for you. Well, that happens. This man married. There are seven of them. He married this woman, and he died without leaving a child. And so each of the brothers married this woman, and each one of them died until all seven brothers had been married to this woman. This woman eventually died. And so they asked the question, in the resurrection, because remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. So in the resurrection, which we don't believe in, but in the resurrection, let's take it for granted, the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? She's been married to seven brothers. And Jesus says, you are mistaken. You don't understand the scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. He says, first of all, in the resurrection, there will be no marriage, no giving into marriage. Why? The church is the bride of Christ. When we get to heaven, there is no need to be married. There's no need for that form of companionship. Jesus Christ is the bride of the church. We are married to him. We will have eyes only for him. And Jesus says, there will be no marriage. We will be like the angels. And he secondly says, you don't believe, in other words, you don't believe in the resurrection. But what did God say to Moses at the burning bush? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. I am the God. Not I was the God. It's because they are living. They may have died, but they're living with God. You see, he says, therefore, there is a resurrection, in other words. Now, after this, after Jesus now has vanquished the Sadducees, there comes a scribe with a question. And he asked the Lord Jesus, which is the first commandment? Now, let me just clarify here. It is most likely that this scribe is not antagonistic to Jesus. In other words, based on the interchange between him and Jesus, there's a genuine question being asked. He comes and he asks the Lord, which is the first commandment? He's not asking which was the first commandment that God has given, but rather first in importance. In other words, which is the preeminent commandment? Which is the chief commandment? Which is the greatest commandment? You need to understand that the, the Jews had divided the Old Testament and argued that there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament. That's a lot of commandments. And so he comes. There was a live debate among the Jews at the time. Which of these commandments was the chief commandment? Which of these we must, be, we must pay particular attention to and make sure that we do not fail to keep? And it is in this context that Jesus says to him, here is the first, that is, here is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What I want to do, I want to just elaborate on this commandment, the greatest commandment. We talk about the great commission, but I want to bring to you the great commandment. I want us to look first at the great commandment to love the Lord. Secondly, I want then us to consider the distinct manner in which we ought to love the Lord. And I want then to move thirdly to the powerful rationale given for loving the Lord. Well, the, the great commandment to love the Lord. Jesus answered him, the first 
of all the commandments, the chief of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. It is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You need to understand that what our Lord does here is that he summarizes the two tablets of the law. The first part of the law tells us we're to love God. The second part of the law tells us that we're to love our, love our neighbor. And so our Lord Jesus Christ is summarizing the commandments given in Deuteronomy and given in Leviticus 18, 19 verse 18 to love our neighbor as ourselves. He's quoting here when he says, Hear, O Israel, he's quoting from, Deuteron- from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. And he says that the chief commandment, that which God desires of us, from us, is our love. But right here we run into some difficulties. Love. Love. It's one of the most overworked words in the English language. What is love? One fellow, a philosopher, I'm not sure where he is as a teaching as a university professor, but he wrote this thesis saying, Essentially, that love cannot be defined. It can only be experienced. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amorphous term. It's a difficult term. You know, young people, I'm not sure today how many of them are into him, but a lot of young people used to say, I love Justin Bieber. I love Adele. You know, I love Beyonce. And at the same time, they go, I love my iPhone. Oh, I love vanilla ice cream. You're not sure whether they love Beyonce like the way they love ice cream or you're not sure the distinction. So it's, very diffi- it's a very difficult term. We use it to refer to a variety of things. But when the scriptures speak of love, I want us to try to flesh this out a little bit, what is being commanded. First of all, the love that is required here for God consists of desire and delight. It is viewing God as the summum bonum, the chief good, the the highest good. And the heart going out after him, desiring, longing, longing to possess him. You see, love is ultimately possessive. It desires to, to take to itself. And you see, loving the Lord means to desire him, to delight in him as the chief good. As that which satisfies the heart. But love must not be seen merely as desiring God and delighting in God. Relishing, savoring God. Love also involves this aspect of commitment. Of leaving and cleaving. Of committing oneself in loyalty and allegiance to God. But there is another aspect to love. Not only delighting, desiring, and committing and cleaving to him. Love ultimately is sacrificial self-giving. The English writer C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says that there are four kinds of love. There is what he calls torge in the Greek, which refers to affection, the kind of love that family members have in a home. He says there is philia, uh, the love that we have for our friends. 
there is, he says, of course, eros, that romantic, passionate love. And then there is agape. And the love that is described here, that, uh, the term that is used here is agape. You shall love the Lord. And, and when, you, when you look at how the term is used in the scriptures, it is generally used of a self-giving love, a sacrificial love. And so when the scripture says we are to love the Lord, it does involve this aspect of delighting in God, desiring God, committing our whole lives to him. But it also means giving ourselves to serve him sacrificially. You shall love the Lord. He should be the preeminent one in our hearts and in our lives. And we should seek to promote his glory. We should love him by giving ourselves fully into his cause and for his service. You shall love the Lord. I want to make a few further points as we try to work our way through what this love looks like. Loving God must be first of all understood not as reflexive but responsive. The love that God demands of us is not then to be viewed as a spontaneous act in us. You know, we, we speak often about relationships. And we talk about people who have fallen in love. Fallen in love. They're walking along and they drop in a ditch. They weren't prepared for it. Well, love is a ditch that they fall into. We fall in love. What, what, what do we say we fall in love? Well, we, the reason we do that is because we, we're suggesting that it wasn't something planned. We didn't, we didn't sit down and say, you know what, that girl over there or that guy over there, I'm going to fall in love with him. Well, it just happens. We're just captured. Ravished by their beauty or whatever it is, or by his muscles, whatever it is. We just didn't intend it. It just happened to us. But love for God is not a reflex of the heart. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism says God commands us to love him. But this is not something that arises naturally from within us. He says the heart naturally hates God. So we need to understand when the scripture says we shall love the Lord, love is not innately reflexive, but it is responsive. In other words, the reason that we love God, it is because we are told by John, in 1 John chapter 4, that God is love, verse 8. We are told further in chapter 1 John four nineteen, and we love him because he first loved us. Our love then is elicited, it is drawn out, it is a response to the original love of God. It is, it is our response to God. We love him because he has first loved us. In other words, human love is always contingent. It is always dependent upon God's preceding prior love. And the love of God for us has been revealed in eternity, in his choice of us. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. However you divide verses 4 and 5, the point simply is that our election is rooted in God's eternal love of God for us. An unconditional love, a love that did not depend on anything in us. It was a love despite our sinfulness. And we learn further that the love God has for us is preeminently expressed in history, in the coming of Christ, and in particularly in his death. 
We cannot forget that passage in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. And what did he do? That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John, again in 1 John 4 verse 10, says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul tells the Romans in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God commendeth. God manifested his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. This amazing, unconditional, eternal love of God was revealed in the cross. The cross was in one sense the greatest condemnation of sin. But on the other hand, it was the greatest expression of love because Christ came. He was sent by the Father from a heart of love. And Jesus Christ came into the world because he loved us. And he went to the cross and he bore our sins. He took the shame. He bore the pain. He did not come down because of love for us. It is in the cross that the love of God for you is preeminently revealed. And it is this love, this love that God has manifested, that draws out our love. You shall love the Lord. It is a response to God's amazing love revealed ultimately at Calvary. But there's one additional point as we're simply being descriptive, talking about this love we should have. It should manifest itself in this desire, this longing for God, this delighting in Him, this cleaving and committing of our lives to Him and serving Him sacrificially. A love that must follow God's love, that must depend upon God's love for us. But furthermore, the love that we are to have for God must exhibit itself primarily in our obedience. There's a connection between loving God and obeying God. I'm not suggesting that we collapse both categories, but I'm simply saying that you cannot have love for God without obedience. You would note that in the Old Testament, that the Old Testament, like passages like Exodus 20, verse 6, associate loving God and keeping his commandments. You will find in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, that loving God involves fearing God, serving God, and walking in his ways, other ways of saying obeying him. In the New Testament, Jesus draws an explicit connection between loving God and obeying God. It says in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is how you manifest your love to me, by obeying my commandments. In 1 John 5, verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandment, and his commandments are not not grievous or burdensome. When you love somebody, you will make it your task to please them. You know, you, you, you may have gone to Hawaii and bought the, the most beautiful shirt. You know, when, when, when bees and butterflies see you, they will be following you all over the place. You're so beautiful. And your girlfriend looks at you and says, well, you know what? I think maybe you should just ditch that shirt when you are going out with me. Well, that may be your favorite shirt. 
But because your girlfriend doesn't like it, you're not going to see that shirt again. It disappears. You, you, you may have disgusting habits. And you may not even notice, but you go out, you start burping in public and doing some things that you shouldn't be doing. And your spouse looks at you or your, your girlfriend looks at you and she frowns. And she thinks, wow, this is really a, barbar- a barbarian. I'm, I'm dating a barbarian. I don't know if you're going to go to YouTube or where you're going to go, but you're, you're, going, to, you're going to learn proper behavior. You're going to ditch the, dis- the disheartening behavior. Because you want to please. Love seeks to please. And where there is love for God, there is always a desire to please him. You shall love the Lord. It involves this aspect then of obedience. But Jesus does not just call us to love God, to make him chief in our lives, to desire him, to cleave to him, and to serve him in obedience. We see, notice, not only the great commandment, but the distinct manner set out before us how we are to love the Lord. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. There are two other gospel passages where the commandment to love the Lord with all our hearts and so on is is revealed. We see this in Matthew 22, verse 37, which follows closely to Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. And there in Matthew 22 passage, it refers to love God with three aspects of our person, our heart, our soul, and our mind. The other passage where the same commandment is repeated is in Luke 10, 27. There it says, we to love the Lord with the heart, the soul, the mind, the strength, and the mind. Whatever the, the descriptions given, we are not to see these as three or four parts of man. They're actually saying the same thing. But what I want to do, I want to just take a moment to look individually at these Four aspects of our persons that we are told we ought to be engaged, ought to be engaged in loving God. Jesus says, you ought to love the Lord. And he says, you ought to love the Lord with your heart. Generally, the term heart, lev in the Old Testament or cardia in the New Testament, refers to the life of consciousness, the, the inner life, the center of our personalities. The place of reflection and of willing and of feeling. It's our real selves. Our genuine persons. Love the Lord with all your heart. It is the source or the spring of all actions. In Mark 7, the Lord refers to the heart. He says, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, and thefts, and so on. It's our real persons, our real, who we are, the inner life, the life of consciousness. Love the Lord with all your heart. Maybe summed up as loving the Lord sincerely from the heart. But our Lord says we're to love the Lord with all our soul. Suke, soul has a wide range of meaning in the biblical literature. If you go back to Genesis, it could refer to the whole person. Soul could refer to the whole person. And the Lord breathed into, into man and he became a living soul. It means a living person. But here, to love the Lord with a soul, 
refers to the place of feeling, the place of appetite. In other words, with the emotion. So loving the Lord then with the soul is to love the Lord passionately, fervently. We see some of this in Psalm 42, 1 and 2 where the psalmist says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, as the deer longs for water, so pants, longs my soul for you, O God. There's a hungering, a passion for God that comes from within. We're to love the Lord with all our heart. And he says, with all our soul. We're to love the Lord sincerely, love the Lord passionately. But Jesus continues. And he says, we're to love the Lord with all what? Our mind. All our mind. C.B. Cranfield, the New Testament commentator, says, that there are two dangers to be guarded against. He says we must be careful of overestimating the mind because the human mind is flawed. It's tainted by sin. In other words, we cannot know God completely. But he says we must also be aware of the counter danger. The opposite danger, that is of underestimating and disparaging the mind. Because the Lord says we to love him with all our heart, all our soul, and with all our mind. What the Lord is saying is that love for God must be intelligible. It must involve knowledge. You can't, you, you can't really love somebody until you know them. And here the Lord is saying you to love the Lord with all your mind. And this involves then, as Cranfi reminds us, using then the intellectual part of our being to love God. It means that we are to try to know him as he has revealed himself in scripture and personally in Christ. We are to try to know him. And we're going to try to know his will revealed for us. This therefore involves a call to make God then the intellectual quest of our lives. That you and I must always be on an intellectual pursuit. But the intellectual pursuit of our lives is to know the God of creation. In other words, if you are studying mathematics or you're studying some science, the end goal of all of your studies must be to lead you back to God. You must know him with your mind. It means that you and I must be devouring the scriptures, reading the Bible, and reading godly material so that we might know about God's character, God's will, God's ways, and God's works. That we may know him better because the better we know him, the greater our love for him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Christianity is not mindless. Somebody said God called fools, but he does not keep them. You see, we must be wise in knowing God. And you can never know him unless you are thinking about him and reading his word. And getting to know him as he has revealed himself. What we want to do is to be delivered from false notions of God. False thoughts of God. That the God that we serve and the God we trust is the one that we know as he reveals himself in his word. 
And then the Lord says, you must know the Lord with all your strength. J.I. Packer describes this essentially as loving God in all our doings, in all our activities. Because he says that this involves a call to love God, to love the Lord in terms of praying, to love the Lord in self-denial, in being single-eyed, in being loyal, in trusting, in being joyful in Him and contentment. The older theologians, when, when, when they read this, to love the Lord with all our strength, says it means to love Him with vehemence. And so they view this as the same as loving Him with passion. But I think that that, that may be true, but it also involves loving God in all our doings, in all our activities. You should love the Lord with all your strength. Meaning, in all of the activities that we, we are engaged in, we must use all of our powers as an act of love to God. We have taken them apart, looked at them, but we must put them back together because really the writer is not suggesting that we have these four parts within us. What he's saying in essence is that we must love God with everything we have got, with all our being, with all our persons. We may not love God perfectly in this life. That remains for the life to come. But in this life, we must seek to bring all of our faculties, all of our resources, all of who we are to this great task of loving and serving God. And the question that must be asked is why? Why then should we love him? We see the great commandment. We see the explicit manner in which we are to love him. But there is a powerful reason, rationale for loving God. It's actually, first of all, revealed in our text. In verse 29. This man has come, this scribe has come, this Religious scholar has come and asked, what is the chief commandment? What is the greatest commandment? You notice what Jesus does? Jesus quotes from the Shema. You notice in verse 29, the first of all these commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is only after he quotes the Shema that he says, and you shall love the Lord. In other words, loving the Lord is a consequence of what he says about God in the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God. But, but why? Because here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart. The Shema was the creed of Israel. It was what the pious Jew recited in the morning and at the evening. Shema, hear, O Israel. Simply, the term Shema comes from the Hebrew term to hear, Shema. It's called the Shema. And the Israelites repeated that. And when they repeated that, they were insisting and acknowledging the uniqueness of God. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, why should we love God? We should love God first and foremost because God is unique in his existence. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It means that there is one numerical being called God. 
It's not denying that there is personality in God, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that there is one essence described as God. One being. One eternal being. And it is because there is no other God. Because there is one sovereign creator in existence. You shall love him above everything else. And this sovereign creator is a God of incredible beauty, a God of incredible wealth, a God of infinite excellence. In fact, when you read in Exodus 15, Moses in blessing God calls God excellent. He says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness and fearful in praise, doing wonders? It is because God is glorious. He is the God of incredible holiness. A God who dwells in majesty and splendor. A God of compassion and grace and forgiveness and long-suffering. A God of incredible beauty. It is because there is no other being like our God that we are to love him with all that we have. But God is to be loved not only because of his unique existence, he is to be loved because of his unique sovereignty. You see, the writer says, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But notice he calls him the Lord. The Lord. Curious. And the term curious, Lord, simply means ruler. You see, it is this our God is ruler. You and I may have many troubles in this life. But we don't need to be worried. One little child sent or gave me a note just last week. Great blessing to my heart. When I'm afraid, I will trust in him. Why? Because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He rules the universe. We don't have to worry that we don't understand what is happening in our lives or happening in the world. We understand that somebody knows what is happening and is in charge of, all, of it all. He's sovereign. He's the one who made Israel, who, who brought them from obscurity, who brought them from the loins of Abraham. He's a sovereign God. But they don't love the Lord because not only of his unique existence, his unique sovereignty, but because of his unique redemption. This, this command to love the Lord is rooted in the knowledge that he is the God of covenant. This term that Moses used, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This term, curious, O Lord, translates the Hebrew, Yahweh. And the term Yahweh, Lord in the Old Testament, was the name, the covenant name that God used to introduce himself to Moses at the burning bush. He's the God of covenant. He's the God who led Israel out of Egypt, who delivered them, who carried them through the Red Sea, who carried them for 40 years in the wilderness and carried them into the land. You should love the Lord because he's a God of wonderful redemption. He's a saving God. He's a sovereign God. And there is none else like him. You see, this is rational because God is a, a God of redemption who redeems his people from slavery. Johannes Schleffler, the German hymn writer, says, Thee will I love my strength and my tower. Thee will I love my joy and my crown. 
Thee will I love with all my powers in all thy works and thee alone. Thee will I love till sacred fire fills my whole soul with pure desire. You and I must resolve to love the Lord supremely. We must love God supremely. He created us for himself. And this God to whom nothing can be added or subtracted desires our love. It's not that in loving God we are giving to God something that he never had before. God cannot be enriched. He cannot be impoverished. And yet he desires your love. This is a call and it demands our attention. It's a matter of choice. We must see God as a supremely attractive being. Our greatest treasure, we are to cleave and commit to him. We are to love him. We are to bring our minds to know him. We are to set our thoughts in captivity to Christ. We are to use all of our strength to obey him and to please him. So when you go out into your office and you are dealing with your colleagues, the, the words you use, the, the things you do for them, you do, it, you, you do your work, but you do it because of love to God, as an expression of your love to God. When, when you sit down to write your exams this week, you do it not because you want to get the best grade, but you want to express your love. All that you do, in all of your works, with all of your powers, you, you show love to, to God. You see, the greatest command is to love God. And therefore, the greatest sin is not to love him. You need to know that in loving God, there are great blessings. You think of what we are told in Romans 8, 28. For God works all things together for good to them that love God, that love him. We read in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. What, what is he saying? He's saying you have never yet imagined the things that God will give to you because you love him. James says that God will give to those who love him a crown of life. There is considerable, innumerable blessings in loving the Lord. It means that you must resolve to love the Lord. But in loving God, you are going to ask me, well, how, how precisely do I go about doing this? And I want to give you at least a few thoughts and then leave you. To love God, you must begin by renouncing false and inferior loves. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 of some of these false loves where the writer Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 4, he says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. And he goes on towards the end of this paragraph and he says, they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If we are to love God, 
we are to give up and renounce false loves. We are to love God and love him above ourselves. We are in this world where we are told that money makes the world go round. At the end of the day, men and women are lovers of money. We spend a lot of time thinking about how to get more and more money. We spend a lot of time engaged in our pleasure, in our hobbies. You see, we are pleasing self. We are lovers of the world. But if we are to love God and love him preeminently, we must renounce every false love. We must submit all our pleasures and even ourselves to God. We must love him above money and above our lives. Because to love anything above God is to make that thing God. But if you are to love God and love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you are to love him, you must receive his love. You see, love is first a gift from God and then a demand. We must never forget that relationship. It is always a gift and then a demand. And to love God, you must receive God's love. And God's love is given to us objectively in the cross. You must must realize that the cross, Jesus Christ and his crucifixion is God's gift of love to us. You ask me, how do I know that God loves me? You simply have to look at the cross. And if you truly want to love God, you must frequently return to the cross. You must look at the gaping, bleeding wound of Christ. You must look at the suffering Christ who bore our sins, who suffered and bled and died. It is only as you go to the cross that love will be stirred in the heart. You ask the question, how much does God love you? He loves you to the point of giving his son to die for you. And the longer you stay at the foot of the cross and look at the bleeding Christ, the greater your love will be. The love of God is revealed objectively in the cross. It is revealed subjectively in our hearts. In Romans 5, Paul says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Spirit. You must receive the love of God. You must believe that the King of the universe knows you and loves you. And he loves you as if though you were the only person on earth to be loved. We have a problem, many of us, with receiving love. We don't think we are good enough. We don't think we are worthy of it. But you must receive God's love. I'm reminded of what John says in his epistle. John says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. You must believe. You must know that God loves you and you must believe it. John says it in 1 John 4 verse 16. And we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. If you're going to love God, you must first of all know that you are loved by your God. 
That you are not just some random person. You're not a mere entity. You are those that he has loved with an everlasting love. You must be able to look in the mirror and say, Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. I want you to know that whatever you do and wherever you go, this truth must follow you through life. You are God's beloved. And he will never give up on you. He will never let you go. He will never leave or forsake or abandon you. He loves you. And it is only by looking at his love that you repeat and love him. You must rely. You must rely upon God's strength to love him. You and I cannot love God on our own. That is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians tells them, May God lead you into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. God must demand love, but he must give it to us. So we must cry to God, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Here I come, Lord, on bended knees, more love to thee. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Ask God to quicken your powers. Ask him to give you a new heart, to circumcise your heart as we're told in Deuteronomy, that you may love him, to give you a new heart and to program it not only with holiness and righteousness, but to give you a new heart programmed with love for him, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we would confess that our love is weak and faint that we do not love you as you deserve to be loved. But we would also confess that we do love you. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us more of your beauty, more of your glory, and that the love of Christ may constrain us to love him more. We we are reminded in your word when the Apostle Paul says, he loved me and gave himself for me. And Lord, we would love you And give ourselves today to you, to use us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.